0: everyone and welcome to the final episode in this series of Pour the Tea Will You with me Leslie Pascuzzi, Lamaze Certified Childbirth Educator. I really hope that you've enjoyed all the episodes up till now but today we really are going out on a high. This has been a conversation that I've looked forward to for a couple of months since Dr Sarah Buckley agreed to be a part of this project that we decided to produce after the start of COVID-19. I just wanted to give you a background on Sarah in case you haven't heard of who she is. Sarah is a New Zealand trained GP and family physician, qualified in GP obstetrics and family planning. She's a mother of four and currently studying for her PhD at the University of Queensland. The focus of her PhD is on the hormone oxytocin and the autonomic nervous system during labour and birth and how interventions to the physiological process of birth would impact that hormone. Sarah's work critiques current practices from pregnancy to parenting, looking wholly at the woman's journey from a science perspective, anthropology, Considering the psychology changes that she'll experience and also the personal journey that that woman is on, it's a real delight and a real pleasure to be talking to Sarah today about Lamar's healthy birth practice number one to let labour begin on its own. It's great to have you with me, Sarah. There you go. Hi. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Um, I wanted to just start by telling everyone who might be listening about this wonderful quote that was on your website that Professor Sandy Kirkman had obviously given feedback to you and as soon as I read this I thought what women can't relate to chocolate so I just want to read it out so that everyone listening can also just take a moment just to connect to how obviously powerful your work has been to not just the professional world but also to women who are going through their birthing journey so um professor kirkman writes discovering sarah buckley is like being told authoritatively that chocolate is not only good for you but is guaranteed to make you slim and also beautiful i mean that is just one of those moments you think how true is that amazing (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah Sandy Kidman's a great speaker she's a midwife and she came and toured Australia a couple of times which is where she met and she always had a very good um uh, light and humorous perspective on on childbirth it was a great pleasure to be be with her
0: yeah yeah and it's just so easy to see that the you know, the connection to chocolate is you know, something that makes us feel good. And I know your work on the birth hormones are about, you know, pleasure and bringing the woman to her authentic place in terms of letting Mother Nature and her hormonal systems do their work. Because when they can do their work, we know that that's an environment for women where birth can take place safely and in a healthy way.
1: Yes, I call it Mother Nature's superb design. And really, you know, there's nothing that we can do um, in modern childbirth that is better than that. That's better than the full expression of Mother Nature's superb design, when the woman has her whole full hormonal physiology and everything unfolds. I mean, that's the optimal outcome. And it's, it's the optimal outcome because, you know, we've got 63 million years of mammalian evolution that's you know um, tweaked that so that it really is the best way to optimize the the well-being the survival of the mother and baby and of the species as a whole so that's kind of an evolutionary perspective that mm-hmm. you know and, and that's also part of what we'll talk about um, I imagine Leslie because you know birth is not just about birth birth is actually about long-term optimizing long-term outcomes mm-hmm. and obviously mother and baby have to survive. The birth but that's not enough you know you also have to have successful breastfeeding otherwise the babies don't naturally survive and i, I mean all mammals here not just women but you know for, for these 63 million years it's only a mere whisker that we've had any chance for a baby to survive without being, without the mother successfully lactating and the baby successfully feeding and the other aspect is attachment, mother-baby attachment, and we haven't really kind of put that on the agenda of birth, but it's, it's part of the processes of labor and birth. It's intrinsically part of uh, the, I call it the triangle of reproductive survival, you know, um, mm-hmm. that mother and baby survive the birth and go on to thrive, have more offspring, um, who survive and thrive and have more offspring because the mother is willing and is hormonally motivated to give this dedicated care that every mammalian newborn baby need needs so, mm-hmm. you know, birth, breastfeeding, and attachment are all related to each other. And you know, we kind of have separated them out in modern maternity care and kind of put them in different journals and different, you know, um, caregivers. But from Mother Nature's perspective, it's all one. It's all one system to optimize well-being and survival. And it's why we're all here today. And the corollary of that is, if we start messing with birth and the hormones of birth, we can also mess with the hormones of breastfeeding and the hormones of attachment. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah it's something like you say that's so under talked about maybe from an educational point of view certainly you know you get women coming in who are so excited to be on this pregnancy journey but when you start to talk about you know the postpartum and the things that can you know be important then they don't connect always the birth process to life with the baby. I feel there's quite a disconnect amongst the women I've spoke to so I feel like this conversation we're going to have is really going to give a lot of not filling in the gaps but just a, a different way to look at being prepared for your birth it's not always just about you know learning to relax or you know learning affirmations or making sure that your place of you know choice where you're going to give birth maybe has access to a birth ball or a peanut ball there's so much else that I feel The women that I've certainly come across, they need to know, because if you know, then you can understand and then feel confident to go through the process.
1: Yes. And one way that I look at this is, um, you know, I talk about, we were talking about Mother Nature's superb design. Well, it's a bit of a continuum, really, in, in relation to the hormones that we'll speak about. I mean, at one end, we have the full expression of all of the mother's hormones and all of the baby's hormones and this best possible start. You know, that's got the rubber stamp of evolution. Um, and at, at the other end of the continuum, we have birth that happens sometimes for really good reasons or, you know, that, that it's necessary for the well-being, or even the survival of mother and baby but you can have a pre-labor cesarean or sometimes called elective cesarean where the mother and baby miss out on so much of that hormonal physiology and most women most mothers and babies are somewhere on that continuum between full hormonal physiology and kind Mm of you know the the bare bones of it and you know what I'm really wanting caregivers and women to, to think from is where, where is this mother and baby or where am I and, and where is the hormonal gap? Because if it's not the full expression of hormones for mother and baby, there's a hormonal gap. Mm-hmm. So what is that hormonal gap and then what can we do to address that hormonal gap?
0: Mm-hmm. Within the Lamas model, we have the healthy birth practice number one, which is to let labour begin on its own. And that is, we know, the best indicator of, Exactly what you've said, the the true physiological expressions for mother and baby through birth. Um, Should we talk a wee bit about actually what that means and um, just why it is so important?
1: Yes, well, um, the first thing to say about that, Leslie, is that we don't actually know what causes labour to start in women and humans. Um, so it's kind of ironic that we're stepping over that what I call miraculous moment um, to induce women or to have a pre-labor cesarean that, that by definition the mother and baby aren't at optimal readiness because you know again going back to evolution it's, it's critical that the baby survives the birth that the mother survives the birth that the baby's ready enough to do all the things they need to do for their own survival primarily to suckle and breastfeed yeah you know? and it's critical that the mother's ready for an efficient effective labor and birth you know because these 63 million years of mammalian evolution we've given birth in the wild primarily like our mammalian cousins and you know you need the most efficient birth possible because if labor drags on and on and on that's a serious risk of predators for the mother and the baby they won't survive so birth is designed to be as efficient as possible birth is designed that the baby's ready for you know survival after the birth and both of those things um, depend on a whole lot of processes that happen even before the onset of labor. You know, uh, I want to quote my my dear friend, um, the late great Janine Pavadi Baker, a midwife from America. And when everyone asked, anyone asked her how long her labors were, she'd say categorically nine months. <laughs> and it's kind of a good way to look at it because really, you know, that's the whole preparation is nine months of preparation to get the baby at full readiness and the mother at full readiness. And as we understand it. The babies, the readiness between the two obviously has to be, you know, perfectly coordinated, yeah. And that happens by hormonal signals that cross the placenta. And we think that the baby's readiness initiates the whole thing and that's the most critical and then the mother's readiness is kind of happens on top of that. So the baby kind of signals that they're ready for labour and helps to, you could say, um, organise the mother's body for an effective, efficient labour and birth. So, you know, there's these pre-labour physiological preparations as we call them in my hormonal physiology of childbearing report which is a free download I really recommend if you're interested in this topic to just search hormonal physiology Sarah Buckley and read chapter two because this is all about what we're talking about today it's about the physiological onset of labour and the impacts of scheduled birth so the thing is as I said we don't understand what causes the physiological onset of labour or what is the final trigger that means a woman goes into labour today and not yesterday you know um, so we don't understand that we do understand some of the preparations that happen, and <clears throat> these hormonal signals i 'm talking about a major hormonal signal is happening via um our hormone called cortisol which you probably know as a, as a medium-term stress hormone but it's actually a critical hormone for all of our survival and cortisol is um, one of the means by which the baby's organs and internal structures mature particularly the lungs you know you may have heard of if a woman goes into premature labor they give the mother steroids to help her to mature her baby's lungs um, so that baby will have better breathing after birth so that they're kind of mimicking what Mother Nature does, which is to increase the cortisol levels in the baby's body, which helps to mature all the baby's organ systems. And in parallel with that, through um, signals passing through the placenta, the, the cortisol in the baby's body parallels the estrogen in the mother's body. And the estrogen is um, one of the major factors that kind of... Shifts the mother into um, an active state where her uterus starts to get ready for labor and birth. You know, for most of pregnancy, it's important to be pregnant. So, the, you know, the, the uterus is in a quiescent, a quiet state, mainly through the actions of the hormone progesterone, progestation, you know, the quietening hormone. And then we have. Um, oestrogen um, starting to come in. And as I said, that's paralleling the cortisol in the baby. So this is one important mechanism that ensures that the mother and baby are at this state of readiness at the same time. Um, so, you know, if we, if we step over that, you know, if we induce or have a pre-labor cesarean, there's a whole lot of preparations that mother and baby are missing out on. And you know, the oestrogen increases the mother's um receptors for this oxytocin hormone in her uterus and what what that basically means is that her uterus becomes more and more sensitive to oxytocin so when we get to that miraculous moment of the physiological onset of labor even just a little bit of oxytocin that she produces at that time will lead to that initiation of labor and effective efficient labor and birth the baby be born quickly and easily it was quickly and easily as possible (laughs) and um and then afterwards you know the Oxytocin helps to contract the mother's uterus to prevent bleeding. So all of those things will happen maximally efficiently when the mother's oxytocin receptors are at this um, the the maximal number which happens at the onset of physiological labor and birth and that's not the only thing that's happening there's a whole lot of processes happening in parallel the prostaglandins are helping to soften the cervix there's um, inflammatory processes inside the mother's vagina that also help to soften the cervix maybe trigger labor it's kind of if i could tell you what as i say if i could tell you what caused that onset of labor i'd get a nobel prize because as i said we don't actually know that but of course it has to be coordinated between mother and baby. So, you know, there's all these pre-labor preparations, and the other thing is, you know, if we're talking, just stepping ahead about breastfeeding and attachment, that those are critical outcomes. Then you have to presume that they are part of the pre-labor preparations as well, so that the mother will, you know, respond optimally to her babies. You know, we're talking about any mammalian mother here. You no. Know, um, they don't go to prenatal classes to learn how to take care of their babies. It has to happen through the processes of labor and birth. So um, in animal studies, and this is kind of hard to do in women, <laughs> um, <laughs> they can see that the oxytocin receptors and, and prolactin as well in the brain starts to get activated and they lead up to labor so that when the mother releases oxytocin during labor, not only will it make her uterine contractions efficient, as we just mentioned, but actually it gets released from the brain and into the brain and starts to switch on all this maternal attachment the maternal circuits as it's sometimes mm-hmm. called that means that when she meets her baby for the first time and again I'm not just talking about women here I'm talking about all mammals um, it's kind of like I call it the best first date ever mm-hmm. because the oxytocin will have switched on all the pleasure and reward circuits in her brain so she meets her baby and her baby is instantly a source of pleasure and reward for her and that's going to set her on a good path to reward and motivate her to give that dedicated care that every mammalian baby needs that every mother provides. So if we kind of look at all those processes that are happening in parallel, and then we imagine that we're going to, you know, circumvent them, or we're going to cut them off early, you know, what could be the consequences of, you know, um, for attachment, for breastfeeding. And and these are really questions that, that haven't been answered. You know, mm-hmm. we've kind of, as I said, we're kind of focused on the birth and not on the other outcomes. And, um, you know, it's kind of predictable that if we do mess with birth and with the hormones such as oxytocin, then we could mess with those other outcomes as well. So um, you know, part of the answer to that question is we don't know what the long-term outcomes might be for some of these things for um, for uh, hastening the hastening the birth for mother and baby
0: mm-hmm. it makes me remember Sarah a woman who described her desire to have a vaginal birth and the phrase physiological birth and vaginal birth normal birth they're often interchangeable when you talk to women, certainly as an educator, I would have heard that circle around the the people attending classes and conversations like this are so important to just highlight that physiological birth is more than just giving birth vaginally.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because um <clears throat> Know there's other things that can interfere with the mother's hormonal physiology, particularly epidurals uh, have a major impact on the oxytocin system for the mother because what actually happens as we go through labour is we have what's called a positive feedback system. And I'm going to refer people to a blog on my website about epidurals, part one and part two, and there's a little picture there. They will illustrate what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So as the mother goes through physiological labor and birth, um, her uterus is causing sensations, <laughs> a, to put it mildly. Yeah. So you're getting these sensations from the uterus and they actually feed back up to the mother's brain. And again, all mammals we're talking here by a specific nerve pathway. And during labor and birth, that signal from, that pain signal that sensation signal from the mother's uterus actually causes more release of oxytocin within her brain and that more release of oxytocin goes into her brain and as I said it helps to switch on those attachment circuits we're talking about it also has natural pain relieving effects it's calming connecting it helps the mother with all the stresses of labor but at the same time she's releasing it into her bloodstream from her brain and that's going down to her uterus and causing even stronger contractions so stronger contractions more sensations more feedback to her brain um, more release of oxytocin from her brain to her uterus causing more contractions. so it's a positive feedback loop i call it the snowball of labor and it's what makes labor go one of the feedback systems that makes labor get bigger and bigger and bigger and become unstoppable in the end but the problem you were talking about you know if we call vaginal birth physiological birth that's not accurate because if you have an epidural um, what happens is it, it, it it's such effective pain relief and by the way I'm not saying epidurals are all bad every every intervention has its place but the downside of it the hormonal gap is that it reduces or completely removes that sense that sensation and that feedback system so what happens is the mother's oxytocin System um, shuts down. You know, she doesn't. She, her oxytocin levels go down, and she doesn't have that calm and connecting her own intrinsic, her own natural pain-relieving effects her own natural calm and connection. Doesn't have the switching on of the attachment circuits, and also because she doesn't have that positive feedback loop, it's harder for her to push her baby out. Because mm-hmm. that feedback loop starts going faster and faster. If you've had a baby, you know that the sensations get stronger and stronger, and particularly strong at the pushing stage, and that's what's helping you actually to get your baby out quickly and easily is those strong sensations so Mm -hmm. if you take away the sensations you know you interfere with oxytocin and it's not physiological
0: birth anymore no having been a mum myself like i've had three inductions of labor um, for various reasons only one i think was truly um, a medical need and that's just come from my own learnings on this journey with lamaze but um when you were talking about, you know, inductions and how that kind of removes or or creates that hormonal gap, is there much known about whether if you induce at 37 weeks, if you induce at 41 weeks, you know, does that have a difference in terms of the amount of, or the size of the gap? I mean, I'm guessing the, the longer you are pregnant for, the more, maybe, develop some of your physiological systems would be or is induction just a straightforward across the board um it has the same impact regardless of when you have it it's a really good question
1: um the problem with human birth is we have this wide variation of normal so some women naturally will go into labor at 37 weeks someone will naturally go into labor at 42 weeks and that's all within you know term labor as we call it term so so the problem is if you you know that where the hormonal gap is between when the induction the week the inductions done and the, and the time that the mother would naturally have gone into labor and we can't actually predict that because we don't know that yeah mm-hmm. so that's what the hormone gap is and obviously the further on a mother is before you induce her the smaller that gap is going to be so mm-hmm. so yeah I, I would say that and, and this is why you know what's happening in in america in particular is there's such a um, strong movement to not induce before 39 weeks and you we are going to get better outcomes for mothers and for babies because mm-hmm. we're close we're, we're, we're reducing that hormonal gap to some extent but we can't predict it because you know at 39 weeks you know a mother might not naturally go into labor till 42 so that could be like a Three week, three weeks of pre labor preparations mm-hmm. that the mother and baby are missing. So, um, yeah, we, we can't predict that. I mean, again, with induction, sometimes there are really good reasons to induce, and it's beneficial for mothers and babies. But we do need to take into account that any time we overstep the physiological onset of labor, we're going to cause a hormonal gap, and mm-hmm. we don't really understand, you know, what the full consequences of that are. Like, for example, there was an animal study with um, prairie voles, a small rodent. And what they found with these animals um, is that – well, this is quite common in in some animals – that during pregnancy if you get a pregnant female and you present it with newborn babies she'll be aggressive to them yeah she'll butt them away doesn't want to have anything to do with them she Mm -hmm. doesn't have any maternal instinct you could say but Mm -hmm. obviously that changes yeah because then she's going to take to give this dedicated care to her babies and um this prairie vole study was very interesting because what they found was that changes just within a few hours before the physiological onset of labor so the day before she'd be aggressive you know a few hours before labor she'd be nurturing she those maternal circuits were starting to get activated so we don't know, you know what happens in women is there a, a hormonal gap in relation to her maternal attachment circuits um, there's lots of other inputs into that that we don't understand because we haven't really researched it in relation to birth and you know what about breastfeeding because again these are you know these are critical outcomes that there's all this, a lot of, you could say, evolutionary investment in. So it's critical from an evolutionary point of view, from Mother Nature's point of view, that breastfeeding is successful. But what happens if we induce women? Um, you know, we don't, again, it's, it's not something It's quite shocking really when they look at the induction rates and we look at how important we now perceive breastfeeding to be, but there's really not good evidence on the impact of induction on breastfeeding. <laughs> it's one of the topics I'm, I'm planning to look at for my
0: PhD certainly being an educator Sarah I feel women fear the word induction it's not a word that often is taken in any other light than a negative one Um, certainly from the point of view of being medically necessary of course like you say we need to intervene when the health of mother and baby is at risk um, Having had three inductions of labor myself, I can speak personally that my third induction was by far the best outcome because with knowledge and confidence and understanding um, a lot about the physiology of pain and how we can manage pain on our own, I feel it's a topic that I'd love to have women not dread that word you know i've I've heard recently of women who are avoiding um, screening for um, GBS, they're avoiding the gestational diabetes screening because they don't want to take the chance that they end up on a different care pathway where they require some additional monitoring um, or perhaps induction ends up being suggested to them. So um, it's a personal kind of hope of mine that induction of labour can get some positive light that even if you do have to have your labor started and as you say you do create a hormonal gap from a physiological point of view that induction doesn't always mean um, epidural and then scheduled or um, emergency caesarean that actually you can have an intervention free labor and birth and experience then much less of the complications
1: Mm, that's brilliant. Well done, Leslie. Fantastic. <laughs> that's really, you know, that's really um, beautiful story to share with women, because as you say, often it's presumed that if you kind of go the intervention route, and there's kind of hormonal reasons, the cascade of intervention, you know, um, you have one hormonal gap, which is the that gap in, um, in preparations, and then you don't have such development of your pain relieving um, Uh, systems and then the oxytocin system and then um you know then you have more pain and then you need more you know epidural for the pain for example i mean that's a classical we call cascade of intervention but you know if you have the knowledge and particularly if you have the support you know Mm -hmm. you can you can get around that and you know you you don't you know like one hormonal gap doesn't necessarily have to cause another hormonal gap you could say
0: yeah yeah i think that's where the The knowledge, certainly from an educator's point of view, I feel um, if women are willing to have the kind of true physiology described to them and they actually feel that they understand truly the systems that are working, then that will bring a confidence to exactly what you say. You might miss the natural onset of labour hormone system, but that doesn't mean you have to give up everything else. It's just popped into my mind Sarah about um, the topic of maternal attachment and I'm wondering if it's ever been looked at with women who experienced attachment difficulties or postpartum mood disorders. Do you know if these women were a population who had been induced with their labour or had experienced scheduled caesareans? Do we know if those women are people who did have the experience of hormonal gaps and perhaps that was the reason or a contributory reason to the difficulties with attachment.
1: Yeah. There's two things, two parts of that question, really. One is attachment, um, which is, you know, the, The attachment the mother has to her baby. How basically attachment is basically well, from my point of view, from a hormonal point of view, it's basically how rewarding her baby is to her, you know. And it's this superb design is designed to activate, you know, the mother's attachment systems by um, by maximally activating her reward and pleasure centers. And there, as I said, it's like the best first date ever when she meets her baby because she's got this positive first impression, and because of this massive activation of reward and pleasure centers. So from my point of view from a biological point of view attachment from the mother is how rewarding the baby is and that's a little bit different to the mother's mood and certainly when we when I wrote the report we looked for any um, any studies looking at the mother's mood and their birth experience, and there really wasn't anything at that time. Um, mm-hmm. There's certainly more literature on birth trauma, and you can imagine if birth is a traumatic experience. And you know, unfortunately, it is for a lot of women. Like a Brisbane survey from a few years ago found 30% of women came out of labor and birth with at least one symptom of post traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and surveys all over the world show something like, you know, five to ten percent you know maybe a little bit less maybe a little bit more depending on the system of women come out with full post-traumatic stress disorder so you know you can imagine that's really going to impact the mother's mental and emotional well-being afterwards um in in terms of you know so in terms of the type of birth the mother has and her postpartum mental health and well-being it hasn't been researched which is again kind of shocking really um it's one of the gaps on one of the research gaps i'm hoping to fill with um with some of the research i'm doing for my PhD
0: Mm. I wonder if COVID-19 this year will shine a light to exactly what you know this gap and and the need to to look at that I, I have a real not concern but you just wonder what the next sort of six months nine months are going to look like in terms of women and you know men partners of of birth and women what their experience and the stories that are going to come around and how You know, the stress and the unknown and the unpredictability within healthcare settings, you know, what that has all added to in terms of the experience. One of the topics raised by women that prompted this podcast to start, Sarah, was related to knowledge and confidence that they could. manage labour and birth to therefore spend a much smaller or a shorter time in hospital. I think when Covid was at its peak, um, if people were delivering in hospital, they wanted to spend as little time as they could um, actually in the hospital setting. So um, we know this would be possible when the mother has not had an epidural, for example, where monitoring in the post-birth would be necessary for her own health. Uh, I read in the report, one system that has to develop in the lead up to labor starting is the spinal cord relieving pathways, which relates to our Lama's healthy birth practice number four with education around comfort measures um, to manage the pain of contractions and not to necessarily need to intervene unless it's medically necessary. So I think from an education point of view, this knowledge in your report is vital really for women to fully appreciate the role of endorphins and the pain relief that will naturally be available to them.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. So there's like um, opioid pain relieving mechanisms that... Will help the mother in labor and birth. The oxytocin, as I said, reduces pain, has a pain-relieving effect, probably by increasing the opioid mechanisms. But what naturally happens for women in the lead-up to labor is we get stronger and stronger um, uh, resistance to pain. You know, you can measure it in women in the lead-up to labor, and and also actually this is interesting. You know, um, stronger and stronger resistance to stress. We actually become, you know, more kind of laid back in in the lead-up to labor. And you know, if you think. about from a kind of mammalian point of view this makes sense because you know we don't want the mammalian mother who's no you know rat elephant dog to kind of freak out when she goes into labor you know she needs some kind of hormonal help so you know that's that's mother nature's intention is that women get all this hormonal help in terms of pain relief in terms of calm um, in the lead up to labor and you know just personally sharing you know i really enjoyed those last few weeks of, of pregnancy and i kind of felt a bit like a big heavy cow and i had this kind of bovine, like just laid back, like relaxed. Like I was in a, a fortunate situation I didn't have to worry about um, going to hospital I didn't have to worry about giving birth by a particular date either you know that wasn't held up and I know sometimes that's a real stress for women so you know I'm really in favor of women having and getting to enjoy those last delicious weeks of pregnancy that can be and you know, when we're full of these hormones and our attachment systems are getting switched on and you know our brain is as I say sinking down to our uterus and we, we're there with our baby and it can be a really most beautiful time and you know physiologically our pain relieving mechanisms are, are getting stronger our stress relieving mechanisms are getting stronger all to lead us into you know the most effective and efficient and 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 fulfilling you know enjoyable rewarding ecstatic you know when they, we get this activation of the reward and pleasure centers it's euphoric it's ecstatic you know that's why I call it ecstatic birth it is nature's hormonal blueprint for labor
0: I love every opportunity Sarah to touch on informed decision making and for anyone listening who has been labelled high risk or told that they're likely to need an induction or to schedule a cesarean before labour would start is an advisable option. I really hope this conversation will start to highlight the knowledge that they could gather and use to be able to ask questions to healthcare providers around What would the risks be, for example, to waiting another 24 hours before intervening, before an induction might be scheduled?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, waiting even a few days, I mean, the, it, there's a much high chance that you will actually go into labor naturally. So any kind of, you know, just a few days of difference between, you know, induction protocols, you know, 40 plus 40 weeks to 41 weeks, I mean, the majority of women will have gone into birth by 40, mm-hmm. into labor and birth by 41 weeks. So yes, definitely. And and I totally agree with you, Leslie, you know, we've got to remember, it's our body and our baby. And we get to choose, you know, no one, can force us to do what we don't want to do and we're going to make the best choices when we have the best information and when we're tuned into our body and our baby as well there's a actually a nice chapter in my book gentle birth gentle mothering about making informed choices and i use the b-r-a-i-n mnemonic What are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the alternatives? What does my intuition tell me? Important Mm -hmm. question. And what happens if I do nothing? So those are all really good questions when you're, you know, when you're confronted with options such as should we just schedule a pre-labor cesarean? And look, it can seem like the easy option, but in the end, it's not because you end up with these hormonal gaps. And we know, you know, it can add um, difficulties with breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we haven't even begun to look at attachment. So it really is creating, from my point of view, a big hormonal gap. So what, what really matters there is that we can fill in hormonal gaps. We can address them. We can help them. But, you know, and, the, and basically the two things we do to fill in the hormonal gaps is, is um, skin-to-skin contact, you know, contact with our baby as early as possible, ideally in the, th- in, in the operating room if we can. I know there's ways of, um, you know, in some hospitals they've figured out how to do a cesarean and put the baby straight on the mother's body so the baby doesn't get separated. Um, there's actually a, a blog on my website called How to Have the Best Cesarean. I recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, um, you know, what what we need you know what we need to do is to be able to take all those those factors into consideration and you know if we know that we're going to have a hormonal gap you know skin to skin contact as early as birth after birth as possible and for as long as possible I'll tell you a story about that in a minute but the other way to fill in the hormonal gaps is breastfeeding because both of those things um, release oxytocin for the mother they release oxytocin for the baby they reduce stress um, they reduce stress hormones all of those things are are reduced through skin to skin contact and just another perspective is that you know when when we go when we have physiological labor and birth it's like this window of opportunity everything's ready and set up everything's coordinated and even like you know a very short labor and birth everything gets turned on and you get these you know best outcome best possible start um but the problem is you know when we um when we step over that, um, when we have a hormonal gap, we miss that window of opportunity and things just, you know, no matter how, you know, we can't fill in the, the hormonal gap is harder to fill in we've got to be much more patient yeah um, because we've missed that window of opportunity and I'll share an anecdote it was a was a mother who had a, um, a cesarean after two home births um, or physiological births and had good experiences both of those times and this was a necessary cesarean and she knew there was something you know it, had, it was going to be different and she said when I got my baby after the the cesarean my baby felt different and that's true for all kinds of hormonal reasons so she said my instinct wants to have my baby skin to skin and she said after three days of skin to skin my baby felt the same wow so it really is she filled in that hormonal gap but it took much longer because her and her baby missed that window of opportunity Mm. in labor and birth so you know some of the hormonal gaps we're talking about you know studies have shown you can fill them in with you know prolonged several months of um of breastfeeding and also skin to skin contact, I'd also recommend. So yeah, be patient. But it really is worth doing because we can fill in those hormonal gaps.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, well, I mean, that's just, I, I feel all fuzzy listening to you just give that short anecdote from that woman, because we talk to women in pregnancy, and they'll say, you know, I've not been drinking caffeine, I've given up wine, I'm not eating too many cakes, you know, they do so much in the lead up to labor and birth to protect their baby they take the prenatal vitamins that you know hopefully they'll attend the the checkups with the midwives but you know there's a whole other side to the things you can do for the health of your baby and for yourself and if breastfeeding is something that women see as a part of their fourth trimester if you want to call it that you would this exact report you've written and and the conversation we've had today and some of the things I'm sure people pick up from wherever they get their antenatal education from is there's other things you can do to protect that baby and some of those are exactly in the birth choices that you make.
1: Mm, That's right and of course if you know if you are going to have a hormonal gap and breastfeeding is important to you then I would highly recommend not just immediate skin to skin you know, the thing is when the baby comes out you know, the baby after a normal physiological birth is ready to, to feed so mm-hmm. again it's about patience because when the baby's you know um been born by prelabus cesarean in particular or even induced the baby might not be is not going to be in that same hormonal state to some extent and you know you're gonna have to be more patient with the baby as well mm-hmm. as with yourself. So mm-hmm. yeah but there's certainly things that we can do and skin to skin and breastfeeding is really you know the the, the hormonal gap filler par excellence. Yeah
0: it's a truly amazing thing and i I feel so lucky to be a woman and to have experienced um labor and birth and breastfeeding and you know we're definitely in a different zone of child rearing at the moment dealing with different problems but you know um i hope that um anyone listening to this will go to your website www.sarahbuckley.com that's right isn't it
1: yeah, that's right.
0: Great. Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you chat to me. I mean, I'm a great follower of what you do, and I feel, yeah, as I said, so excited to see what comes of your PhD. And thanks for your <laughs> okay, time. It's a
1: pleasure, Leslie. Yeah, thank you very much. Pick okay. And all the best to everybody.
0: Yeah, okay. Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So just to go back to Sarah's website, www.sarahbuckley.com. If you want to find out more about Sarah's incredible work on the childbearing hormones, please do visit her website to get all the links to her book, her blog, and to learn more about the fascinating work. And just a last note from myself personally. As I say, this is the last episode in this series, so I hope this project has brought you some enjoyment, some education, some confidence as you approach your labour and birth during this pandemic time. Here in Western Australia, we probably are at the back end of that now. We seem to be returning to normal, but I know that that won't be the case for everyone, so... um, I hope that you've enjoyed the episodes, you found them useful. Um, please do look out for www.lamazaustralia.com We will be launching our own website as an affiliate organisation of Lama's International. That's happening imminently and if you have an experience or a story that you'd like to share with me, it is my hope and my plan to do a second series Looking at birth stories, not necessarily COVID-related birth stories, but an opportunity for you to tell your birth story. Um, so, if you are someone who'd like to do that, please do get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, on Facebook. My website is www.lesliepascuzzi.com, or you can send me an email to l.pascuzzi@thebear at lamazaustralia.com thanks everyone and with all my best wishes i hope you have a great birth and experience